Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And my very special guest today is Eli Seriak from Cushman Wakefield. Eli is our super top secret, amazing, shouldn't be really top secret, just our amazing real estate agent who found us our incredible office space in San Francisco. So I want to have him on the podcast. Eli, thanks for coming and maybe just tell everyone about yourself. Great. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Scott. I'm happy to be here. So I'm a commercial real estate broker with Cushman and Wakefield, and I've, I've worked in the Bay Area as a real estate broker since the, the dot-com, really since the, the end of the dot-com was when I decided to... to perfect timing. Exactly. Perfect timing <laughs> to, uh, to jump into the real estate market, but I've, I've toughed it out for the last 16 years since then. And I started doing that a year after college. I, my first job out of college was actually as a travel guide writer. And I, I, didn't I know that. that's awesome. Yes. And I, I traveled in Australia and Southeast Asia, primarily in Vietnam, writing about things to do there. And then that was in 1999 and was able to move back to the U.S. and continue to do some largely freelance work for startup travel companies and eventually got to the point where I needed to settle down and get a a real job that was kind of keeping a roof over my head but that was that was about it and I think the appeal of getting into real estate was in in some ways rooted in that travel guide writing some of the things that I loved were you know, not being chained to a desk and also really, you know, understanding a, I I see my job as understanding, needing to have a very deep understanding of San Francisco and the the Bay Area market and being able to help our clients navigate that. And and in some ways that was kind of rooted in what you might do as a, as a travel guide writer, where you really need to understand, uh, you know, it's a little bit different because you're looking at as a travel guide writer, what are the cool places to go? What are the fun things to do? But I think your job as a, as a guide, as a real estate broker is to understand all the dynamics of somewhere like San Francisco and the Bay area and what's happening in the market and how the companies that are out looking for space should take advantage of that. Yeah. It's like, I never, I didn't even know you're a travel writer, but yeah, you have to understand like the flow of the neighborhoods and how people feel in certain places. And I mean, we were talking, we wanted something downtown, but we also wanted it to be nice because we want to be excited when our I want our clients to be excited when they came to our office you know and you nailed that you for those who don't know we're based in Union Square now because Eli found us an awesome place so I, that, that's interesting so you you must be like really in tune with kind of the way the streets flow and the noise and the vibe and all it's it's it's, it's pretty interesting it's like a real kind of being in tune with the environment. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that part of the job, love seeing how the, the city changes and has changed over, over the last several years and helping people to, um, who are starting businesses here and growing businesses here to, to better understand that and, and take the best advantage of it that they, that they can. Yeah. Well, so maybe tell us a little bit. So I think there's a couple things we want to cover. I want to talk about the San Francisco real estate market because you're an expert here. Um, and there's always a lot of like we were talking before we turned the mics on, like people got really nervous early in the year and the real estate crash is going to happen or something like that. Maybe kind of give us a viewpoint on the San Francisco market and then the, just the broader uh, startup real estate market. Cause you have you guys are everywhere. You're national. So you have some viewpoints on that. And then just kind of getting into like 
you know, how, what, what mistakes startups can avoid when they're negotiating either a lease or in our case, we subleased. So we did like a two year sublease, which you talked us through the whole thing and helped us read the contract and everything. So maybe just some of those things, but it's probably, you know, let's talk about your home court here, like San Francisco, downtown San Francisco. Like, what are you seeing? What's the activity like? What do people need to be aware of? In San Francisco, we and we talked about this a little bit earlier. It, at the beginning of this year, it felt like the market was was going through a transition, and different people had different opinions on how severe that transition was. And I've, as I mentioned, I, I started doing this in the what turned out to be what I thought was the dot com boom, but by the time I actually started working, it was I think the first day of the the <laughs> dot com collapse. And and then it was just a a very challenging market for everyone for for landlords for the companies that were trying to do business here. And then uh, saw a similar thing happen again in two thousand the financial crisis of two thousand seven and two thousand eight. And and in both those times, fundamentally, it, it, the market broke. It just it just quit working. And uh, and it was a for at least a couple years after that. In both those circumstances, it was a very challenging place to do business yeah. and what, what caused it to break because it was like obviously the startups funding fell off a cliff so there's less cash going to startups but it feel it was also like some some issues with landlords and maybe unrealistic expectations like what did you see why was it breaking yeah I, I, so i think in in both those cases i think unrealistic expectations were were what broke it on in in the dot com it was more uh it was more on the on the demand side where where companies got massive amounts of funding and took down massive amounts of space, whether they really had a business model and in some cases whether they even really had employees. And and so the, the demand side was just completely out of whack. In, in the financial crisis, it was more, I would say, supply side. The mm-hmm. just money was, was cheap. And we saw, it, it was interesting, the run-up to that for rents, we saw pretty consistent rent growth, but it was fairly modest. But you looked at things like the valuation of buildings and the valuations of buildings would double or triple despite the fact that rents had only gone up maybe 20 to 40%. And and so it was just, it just felt like the market was fundamentally out of whack and not, not working on, on the way the basic principles of economics yeah, should, that's should work. That's really interesting. Cause so I didn't know that that's, so was it that the people who bought these buildings that drove the valuation up, you know, doubled it, they paid, they paid double. They then needed certain rents to make their financial models work themselves. And so they were like holding out for certain levels of rents that maybe the market just couldn't provide. Is that what was happening? Fundamentally, yes. And it wasn't just the people that were buying the buildings. It was the people that were lending them the money to buy the buildings. It was like the whole <laughs> the whole system was yeah. set up to – there were a lot of people that were benefiting from, from making loans or appreciating building values and, and people sort of – lost track of the of just the fundamentals of what was really happening in the yeah. market here and then you know by the, I, I wouldn't say that the financial crisis was solely because of real estate but it was obviously a big a big part of it but then so talking about those two crisis periods in our our relatively recent history it's 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 interesting where I feel like over the past year, there have, there have been certainly a lot of naysayers and, and highly concerned people that look at what's happening here and feel like it's, it's, it's maybe a repeat of some of those things that we've seen in the past. But fundamentally, the market just feels 
a lot more stable and it's and I, I feel like it's doing a better job of correcting and dealing with some of the the things that are happening out there than it than it has uh, than it has in the past and I, I you know I'd like to think that maybe as people or business people maybe we've all gotten smarter and and maybe a little bit less greedy and and better able to understand those dynamics that's probably uh, probably being a little optimistic in those beliefs know. I but think that's true though because I think on the startup side, a like we're a key advisor for a lot of these startups. So like we're telling them to stretch their runway, be careful about expenses. Like especially coming into 2016, because like you said, people were kind of forecasting a slowdown in venture capital. So we were doing that. And then there's things like Twitter and Facebook, and like entrepreneurs are on Twitter and Facebook all the time, and they're seeing their friends talk about things publicly where they're running out of cash or they're renegotiating their lease or whatever needs to happen. So I feel like information is actually – people aren't afraid to talk about this stuff anymore. Whereas maybe the last two, A, the tools like Twitter and Facebook didn't exist back then. And also people have learned something. Like a lot of experienced financial types in the startup world have gone through some crunches and they know what happens. So you know, I actually do think we're smarter. Like do you, you agree? I think so. I think there's a <laughs> – There's a hesitation there. Yeah. No, I, 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 I just I, – I, my mind always goes to our – our presidential race, which 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 kind of pokes a hole in my theory that, that uh, you know, depending on your political views, that that uh, as a people we're evolving and getting better and smarter. I don't know if we're good at picking presidents, but we're good at uh, at at managing startup burn rates. Okay, we're, I will, we're getting better at that. I will I will give you that. But yeah. but th- there's there's other things too. Um, I mean, I look at at solutions like like WeWork, and I actually have uh, some concerns about. I personally don't know that I would invest in WeWork. I, I just I've, I've seen what happens when a market turns and how hard it can be to unload things like sublease space or excess space. So I, I, I look at what they're doing, and I, I I do have some concerns about the business model. But I also look at that as a good solution for a tech startup or really any kind of startup. And being able to do a short term lease, not having to put up a giant security deposit, not having to make a investment in in furniture fixtures and equipment and and I just think there are more and better solutions out there for startups where they can find something that's a good if you have a 6 or 12 month horizon for your business for your company don't go sign a 7 year lease and so I and I and I think there are I I think the market has delivered some some better solutions yeah. and and I think that's maybe helped prevent some of the things that we saw particularly going back to the dot-com where you would see a company that maybe had had just raised a bunch of money and had a handful of employees but would go sign a 50,000-square-foot lease for seven years when they had a six-month vision for their company. Yeah. And, and, we're, and we're, we definitely aren't seeing that kind of thing happen nearly as much yeah. as we, we did back then. Yeah, I think people, I mean, people listen to their advisors too. Like, you're a key advisor for these startups, like, I mean, when we were moving in this space, we asked you a lot of these questions, like how long of a lease should we, how big of a space, what's the square footage supposed to be? You know, like you were there for these companies and so you're providing the service, you're making the entrepreneurs a lot smarter. I mean, it's, it's a big value add. What are you seeing in San Francisco? Like, it, so it's more stable. Is it our rents kind of holding? Like what's, what's kind of on drilling down on San Francisco? So, so rents are fairly stable. They've, they've doubled over the past six years, but this year, They've ticked up slightly this year. the The vacancy rates also gone up as well. Those things are those things are supposed to move in opposite directions. <laughs> if vacancy goes up, rent's supposed to go down, and vice versa. But essentially, what's happened is rents have leveled off. 
there's a lot more sublease space out there, which is actually great for this market because those are it's it's great for the market and it's it's great for tech startups in particular because those are frequently move in ready. A lot of times they'll be furnished. A lot of times they are shorter term, and so you're not as a as a younger company you're not having to make a huge long-term real estate commitment and you're also not having to invest in all the furniture and and startup costs to get your get your business operational so for us the the shorter term is actually very helpful and it was i don't know if people always think about this but we're we're very fortunate we're growing very fast and so for us a two-year commitment on a space that we we're going from you know last year we probably had four or five people to now we're at 12 we think we'll be at 20 by the end of, you know, by this time next year or 25, that two year kind of time zone actually allowed us to plan for our growth better and not lock us in somewhere. So it's not even just like about the overall size of the commitment. Cause when you sign a two year lease, you're on the hook for two years worth of rent, whether you're there or not, but like actually having like a more modular space strategy where we, we, if we're growing, we can get out of this space in a very short amount of time was, was really big for me. So I'm actually like a huge fan of subleasing, like actually advise a lot of our, our clients that they should be subleasing instead of signing like a five-year lease. Are you seeing that across the board? We are. And most landlords are still going to want for a bigger space. They're generally going to want a, a five-year term for a yeah. smaller space. You, depending on who the landlord is, you might be able to get a three-year term, but there's a lot of tech companies that are are belt tightening, and so we're we're seeing more sublease available as a as a result of that. And uh, it, it, it's interesting though we're seeing a lot of belt tightening, but I I've actually been surprised that we haven't we definitely haven't seen that many companies that just have have burned out and and not made it. So it it feels like it's it's more of a uh, just just streamlining belt tightening. Yeah. But but the good news is for uh, for companies that are out looking, those are there's a lot of those options out there. The the good ones go quickly, as you know. Yeah. I, I, you may recall we were the first group to look at at this space that you're in now, and it we had actually been having a conversation with this tenant, so knew the the tenant who's now your sub landlord, and so knew that they were out in the market looking. And so when something like this does come available it goes quickly and i think we were uh we we were fortunate to kind of get the first look at this and be able to to move quickly on it well i i want to tell a story because you're the reason why i like working with you is you're amazing so i called eli i was like hey jeremy downs jeremy if you're out there thank you for the intro and uh by the way i just posted on facebook i need help finding a space for cruise consulting and jeremy responded told me to reach out to eli so i talked to eli and within like half an hour of talking, you had sent me eight spaces that went on. I did a quick uh, kind of scan through that. And actually, nothing really caught my attention. So I called you back and you're like, hey, did, did, I think like space number three in that list actually would fit what you're looking for. So sure enough, I went back, looked at the PDF. Vanessa and I both liked it. We literally met you within the hour at the space. We did a tour. And within 10 minutes, we were like, this is it. And you advise us on what to offer and everything like that. And we actually got the space, I think, the next day or the day after. So it was, you were super responsive. You're amazing. And you also, I think people maybe don't understand the importance of, because you guys are seeing the market from both sides. Knowing what's coming on is huge because you were basically able to advise us and say, one of the questions I asked you was, is something else better going to come on the market? And you're like, 
basically no guarantees, but this is probably the best you're going to find for a while. And you better make a move pretty quickly. And so we did, and we got the space, and we're ecstatic about it. But if, I, I think if we hadn't have had that like really rapid response, like we basically did this deal like in a day. I don't think we'd be sitting here and we'd be, we'd probably be in a, not such, such a great space because of, you know, without your responsiveness. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I think one interesting thing about that is we knowing this space, which was shorter term, good, good fit for a company, your size had some furniture and, and, and things available, even though there's a lot of sublease space out there, it's, it's still it's it's not all great space, and it, and particularly for I, I think a company that's less than thirty people. If you get bigger than that, there are some good options out there. But but on the smaller side, it's just it's pretty hard to find good options. So I think based on that experience, we we knew that this was a space that was going to go quickly and would be a fit for for somebody like you. The real estate deals are they are. Uh, you you typically are not going to find the right space the first the first time you go out and yeah. look and they I, I would uh, I would love to claim that that everyone we work with it's it's that easy and we we wave our magic wand and, and the perfect <laughs> space appears um, I, th- I think we were somewhat fortunate in that case but I but I think part of that was having the experience of just knowing that this this kind of space isn't available very much and when it when it hits the market it 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 goes quickly. And then you, you mentioned a little bit, uh, you know, the fact that we're a bigger firm. I actually started my career at a, uh, a boutique smaller firm and then moved to a regional firm that has now grown into Cushman and Wakefield, which is a global firm. And I, I think from a real estate perspective, the most important thing is, is whoever you're working with, uh, you want to have, make sure that they're experienced and, and uh, competent and have a high level of accountability and know what they're doing. And I, I, I think there are advantages to working with, with a, maybe somebody who's at a, a small boutique firm or somebody who's at a big global firm, they can, they can both make cases either way. But one of the things I, I love about being at a, at a big firm, which is a somewhat new experience for me over the past couple of years is just the information we have yeah. on my business is working with mostly working with tech companies and companies that are out looking for space, but we have people that specialize in representing landlords and in trying to lease their buildings. We have people that and sell buildings. With us. You knew, you knew the landlord, the landlord knew the other, the, the, our master was moving out. And so that's why we knew the space was becoming. It, yeah. Exactly. It's, and that's, there's a real information synergy there. Exactly. And so it, there's actually, um, another sublease that we just wrapped up. That was a, a, a colleague of ours who was working with a company that was growing and, and I, and we had a a client that needed space and we, because, uh, this, this company tune in was working with one of our colleagues and and our client was a a company called Smule who had been looking, uh, looking for space for a long time, but we had that space never hit the market. It allowed Smule to double their footprint, um, and, and get a, a very cool brick and timber, type space but that came about in large part because we we knew that the other that tune in was out looking and that their space would come available and it actually never hit the market but we were able to to find them a great brick and timber space right next to the the ballpark which is where they wanted to be well also like i mean i feel like working with you i get that personal service of a boutique so it's not like 
I don't, I don't feel like, I think I'm getting the best of both worlds. I'm not making a trade-off. Like, I get the information advantages of Cushman and Wakefield, but I get the personal touch of you. Like, that, that's what I'm looking for. In and, a, and I think that's one thing that's gone really well with our with our merger with Cushman and Wakefield is, is I, having never worked for a big company before, had reservations that it was going to be bureaucratic, that there were going to be lots of rules and forms to fill out and God knows what else. And I've actually, I've, I've, I've been extremely pleasantly surprised with they've kept the kind of the core entrepreneurial culture intact, but we also have all the really global resources and people that can help out with things like construction or just understanding because of their deep, because of Cushman's deep landlord relationship, space that's going to become a market before before other people might see yeah. it, and so it's it's I, I, I'm blown away at at how little interference there's been with the entrepreneurial part of the business while letting us kind of take advantage of if somebody needs an office in London or Tokyo or New York or Austin that we have the resources to take care of all that. And it's, it's great. That's a soundbite for whatever investment banker put together that deal. You can, <laughs> they can put that in their pitch book. Um, well, so, so you do have all this information kind of globally and maybe you can talk about the startup landscape in terms of real estate across the country. And, and really the, the big startup hubs are, you know, Bay area, Santa Monica and New York. Like what are you seeing in, in across those hubs? So Palo Alto in Silicon Valley continues to be the most expensive submarket in the entire country. Parts of New York and San Francisco are, are next after that. I would say in all those startup type hubs, we're seeing a little bit more sublease space. I think the other really interesting that, that we're seeing a lot of is our clients that are here, the cost of living is so high and the, some of the hiring challenges are so intense that we are seeing more and more clients go to places like Austin, mm. Denver, maybe certain parts of Los Angeles. Uh, I, I just finished a deal in New Jersey. So we're seeing a lot of Bay Area headquartered growing companies look to other markets for, sometimes it's, I, I, I feel like for, primarily for hiring and cost of living reasons, but also sometimes our clients will they'll find somebody that is a a key employee maybe it's a head of sales and they're going to put that person in Denver because that person can have a better lifestyle in Denver and and then they will grow an office around that person so i think i, th- I think that's another trend that we're we're seeing a lot of and how people are dealing with the very expensive rents but also the very expensive cost of housing and the very expensive cost of hiring people here in the Bay area. I've seen that, that use case you're talking about in Salt Lake city and Denver a lot. And it's all, it's not, it's sales and it's also like customer support or, you know, like call center stuff. Like that's the, those are really exploding in Salt Lake city and Denver. Like I see the tech companies uh, that in Phoenix, Phoenix is the other one. Like those are the three big markets I see. Tech companies in the Bay Area who are kicking ass, who are real, who've kind of hit that hundred employee mark, and then need either a sales office or a customer support office, they're going to Phoenix, Salt Lake City, or Denver. Absolutely, it's, it's good for those cities. I mean, they're they're building that tech e- ecosystem there. So so and and anything like anything you're seeing like Santa like we we are seeing a massive increase in uh, clients coming to us from Santa Monica. Like that, it feels like that ecosystem is just like really catching fire. Like what are you seeing in the LA market? 
we have clients that have, it's interesting. We our clients that have, I've seen it more from the perspective of companies here that are looking at opening a Southern California office. And a lot of times we've actually avoided, we've looked at Santa Monica, but not made a deal there mm-hmm. because it's, it's so popular and yeah. so expensive. So we've ended up doing things in maybe El Segundo, for, for ah, example. Yeah. We, were, we actually just finished a lease with a, a, a company called Fab Kids, which is part of Just Fab, which is headquartered oh, down yeah. in, in El Segundo. And, um, you know, and, and that was probably not any insight into the Santa Monica market from that, but we are definitely seeing a lot of companies that will have a Northern California and a Southern California presence. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, I've seen a fair amount of both where, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a company headquartered down there uh, making more of a footprint up here, which is what fab kids is doing. But, but even more frequently it's, it's companies up here that are, are opening a, a smaller satellite yeah. office down there. That's cool. And then, uh, are you seeing anything special in New York? Or is it just kind of business as usual for the startups? We're working on a, a few things there right now. I don't, I feel like it's still business as usual with a little bit more sublease space and, and more options out there. I think one striking thing for me is that in a lot of cases, San Francisco is every bit as expensive as New York rents, <laughs> constructions. We've had, yeah. uh, I mean, just... We've made it. We've, yeah. we've achieved. We had um, our uh, Cushman and Wakefield team is the the leasing brokers on the um, One World Trade Center. Oh, wow. And so we had them in for a presentation a month ago, and it was just a- amazing to hear about the, the, the building and... But perhaps even more amazing was the fact that their their rents there and their construction costs are basically the same as wow. they are almost on average in San Francisco, which is which is it just feels like New York should I be think more expensive. I think so. we're getting there, like the traffic and inability to cross the bridges and everything. I think we're we've achieved that. By the way, total digression. But what's happening with this whole sinking building in downtown? Like I just keep reading about this. Is, and it's going to like mess up the bus system and or the you know I, what I'm talking about I, yeah so the so the Millennium Tower which is a residential tower there's been a lot of coverage about the building J.K. Deneen, who's a writer for the Chronicle, wrote a, a, what I thought was a great story about it on Sunday, which really focused on how other buildings are doing their foundations, and it's a problem. I don't question that, but the. What I don't have a great sense on is how severe is that is the problem. Yeah. I, I I know people that live in in the Millennium, and <laughs> and most of them are actually like like I would say there's varying degrees of concern about how serious the problem is. Yeah. I mean, everybody is absolutely concerned, and and it ranges from people that think it's this cataclysmic event to maybe the building's just settling more than normal yeah. and 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 people are making a bigger deal about it than they than they should be. So I I enjoyed the piece that JK Deneen wrote because it really focused on what there are a lot of buildings that have similar foundations to the millennium that haven't settled as much and then there's it seems increasingly common that more buildings are actually drilling down to to bedrock which honestly it sounded like that might be because they they figured out that they probably should have done it a little differently yeah, on Millennium yeah. on the oh, Millennium Tower. Yeah, because the Salesforce Tower is right over there, and it's like just seems like all the stuff's getting intertwined. But Absolutely. anyways, yeah. Um, so 
thanks for the the high level on those markets. Now, what what are some tips or some some counseling you give in startups? Like when they're signing a lease, maybe it's subleases, or maybe it's taking down the big the big space. Like, what are some things that you advise startups on and how to avoid mistakes? So, so one of the key things is. Think about your exit strategy. I mean, obviously, the the key thing should be making sure the space is is the best fit. That it's it's going to help you with hiring. That, as we said earlier, you're not making a if you have a two year vision for the business, you're not signing a seven year lease. Some of mm-hmm. some of those mm-hmm. sorts of things. But I think something some companies overlook is is if you hopefully you're out growing the space because you your your business is doing so well. But maybe. Um, maybe you need to cut back and move to a smaller space that you you make sure you understand what what the exit strategy is if you if you need to get out of the space mm-hmm. usually that's going to be subleasing and i think one of the the key mistakes people will make is if you have something that's really specialized in your space I mean, I'll, go, I'll use FabKid, so I was just talking about it as an example. They, we're going to do a photo studio in their space, but one of the things that we're making sure of is that that photo, photo studio is something that could be easily converted into a conference room because oh, if they – I mean, they are expecting the space to work for them for the next five years, but if at some point they, they need to outgrow it and we need to sublease the space – there aren't very many companies that, that are going to want to have a photo studio. Yeah. So, so I, th- I think we've done a good job in designing that so that that photo studio could easily become a, a conference room. And if they at some point do need to, to get out of the space. So, so, I, yeah, yeah. so I think, look, it, you want to have a space that's going to help you with hiring where people are going to be excited to come to work every day. I mean, the, it's, it's so competitive to hire here. Anything you can yeah. do with your space, I think, is, is, is key. But make sure you don't do anything too quirky or weird that's going to make it make it hard to sublease if you if you get to that point yeah so that's really good advice like because sometimes i've seen this in different business cycles where it sounds great to have a photo studio and with content marketing becoming more important like i totally get that but like you you sometimes will tour these failed businesses and you'll see that they put a ton of money into the kitchen or a ton of money into something like a photo whatever it is and they're never going to get that money back, and it makes it more difficult to to sublease it. So that, I think that's really good advice. Absolutely, and and I, there it's important to focus on things like the subleasing language and what your rights are. But I think it's just as important to make sure, practically speaking, is is there going if you do need to sublease the space, is it something that that's that's marketable? I think another thing is. The security deposit conversation. There are some landlords that are are m- much more comfortable with either tech startups or earlier stage tech companies. Obviously, most companies are going to be want to be guarded with their financials and not not share them too broadly. But I think you, the number of times that I've seen a company not really understand what the security deposit might be until mm-hmm. they have other the other deal terms ironed out, it, it shouldn't be the last thing you figure out. And if maybe if you're a tech startup, there's there are landlords that are going to want uh, maybe as much as a – if it's a longer-term lease, it could be as much as a 9- or 12-month letter of credit. Wow. Yeah. And, and you want to have that conversation sooner rather than, than later and understand – what the landlord's position is going to be on that and give your, give yourself mm-hmm. some, some, some time to negotiate. So. What are you seeing in terms of terms like on a, on a, how many months for a deposit and how many months for a letter of credit? It really varies on, it, it varies a lot on the landlord. It varies a lot on the amount of construction dollars that the landlord's investing in the space. And, and it, a lot on the company, a, a, a company that just raised a, an A round, but doesn't have any revenues yet. You may see a landlord ask for a six or twelve month yeah. security deposit. 
Uh, I also think it's important if you're if you're maybe a a very early stage company and don't have a lot of revenues to point to yet. You you, you want to highlight if you have prominent backers, whether it's a, a prominent individual or a prominent VC firm. firm yeah. Make sure you emphasize that because it'll uh, you know if you can go in and say well. Kleiner Perkins believes in us, so landlord, you should as well. Yeah. I, I think uh, I, I think those sorts of things can help with uh, with security deposit. So that makes total sense. What are some other things you've seen out there that people, you know, kind of like for us? It was um, making sure the, the the timeline on the space was long enough so we could be comfortable here, we could move in, but then also not too long so we outgrew it. Like, what are some other tips you give startups? I, I, I think. Overbuy, there's, there's a, you can have an overbuying problem and an underbuying problem. And, and, and we, we generally advise folks to err on the side of underbuying. Don't, you're, you're better off the, the, if you're in the space for 10 or 12 months and then you, and you're growing out of it, that is a, as I see it, a much better problem to have than you're in the space for 10 or 12 months and you realize it's three times as much space as you need. And you've got all this this overhead, and then maybe you can't sublease it, or you can't sublease it as quickly as you would like. So I would, um, I mean, it it is going to vary company to company and startup to startup. But I would always err on the try and err on the yeah. on the side of underbuying. If, I'm, uh, I'm nodding vigorously here, like I totally agree. And it, there's also something to be said for. You know, people always don't want to be too cramped, but there's an energy that comes with working, especially a startup, working very tightly together because everyone sees how hard everyone else is working to make this, make a company successful. And so I think underbuying is actually really, really good advice. Couldn't agree with yeah. that more. Cool. Um, one more tip. You got anything for, you know, where like maybe, maybe there's some different things that people need to consider, whether they're downtown or maybe they're in Union Square or maybe they're in Civic Center. Like, is there specialized advice you give? Startups, depending on where they are in the city, it, it, it's going to vary so much company to to company. But I just I just fundamentally think fit is the most important mm-hmm. thing. Understanding from a location perspective, it's understanding not just where the people you have today live, but where the people you want to hire might be coming from. If you think you're going to be hiring engineers from Silicon Valley, obviously try and take a location closer to Caltrain. And in, in other things, this goes back to uh, a little bit about what I was talking about, exit strategy. I mean, if you're maybe you're a, a group of friends that have had some success and you really just want to bootstrap it and you don't need a cool space and you're not worried about it, it's going to be a handful of people just just working their ass off and, and you don't need a cool space for hiring, then I, I think that's a great situation where you take something cheaper, uh, you know, the equivalent of a, of a garage or, or whatever it might <laughs> yeah. be. But if you're, but if, if you need to ramp up the business and do some hiring, then you need to go take a little bit nicer space. That's going to be easier for people to get to and is going to impress the people you want to hire. So just really thinking about what that what that fit is for yeah. your particular business. And I'd also say when you're, you know, you're looking at hiring a real estate professional or really anybody to help your business out, make sure that they're trying to really understand your business and what your business objectives are and not just tell you that, you know, rents are going to be this much near the ballpark and this much downtown and there's this much sublease available. Make sure it, it, there's definitely not a one size fits all approach. Yeah. So make sure you're working with somebody who really digs in and understands 
what's important to your business and your, your growth goals for that That, business. That last point is huge. And that's what we got with you. Like you really helped us. And I know when I was, before we can turn the mics on, I was like, Hey, I think, you know, we should a a year from now, let's start talking about where we need to go next. So I think having a good partner and we think of you as a partner to our business, like guiding us, helping us because we're not experts in this. And I think almost every startup CEO is not going to be an expert in real estate and they need to work with someone they trust and believe in. So and you're that for us. So thank you so much, Eli. Thank you. Uh, can you tell everyone where to find you on the internet and how to reach out to you if they're interested in working with you? Yes. Uh, so the easiest way is probably my email, which is eli.syriac at cushwake. And that's E-L-I dot C-E-R-Y-A-K at cushwake.com. I'm, I'm also on Twitter, relatively, relatively new to Twitter this year, Syriac Eli on Twitter. And those are the two best ways to track me down. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming by on Founders and Friends, Eli Syriac. I can't give you a big enough rec- recommendation. Like you have been amazing for us and I hope other startups will reach out and work with you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, man.